I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back to another episode of Artist Digest, the podcast where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that connects us. My name is Conrad. And if you're new to the show, you might be joining us live on Instagram where we just record the podcast live so you can ask questions. And, or if you're new to the podcast version, which has been released, this one very quickly, quicker than normal, uh, welcome, welcome. But here's the early disclaimer. The early disclaimer for this podcast is that it's probably not for everyone. And it yeah. might not be for you. I'm just being honest. Uh, if cozy, warm echo chambers is your, is your thing, it's great. It might, it, it just might not be here. Um, you might hear some ideas that you disagree with and that's uncomfortable, but I guess that's the, uh, that's the design of the show. So if you're okay with that, then you're in the right place. This week, uh, returning friend of the show, welcome back, Dr. Peter Rollins. Thanks for joining us on Instagram Live here, Peter. Ah, it's great to be here, man. And I, I love comfy echo chambers, so I don't know if this is going to be for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I disagree with myself all the time. So let's see how it goes. Uh, but excited to be back on the on the podcast, mate. Yeah. Well, it's it's fantastic to have you back. And I I just noticed you've got a, quite a tidy room behind you. You've, I mean, that's a pretty good yeah. studio setup you've got there. You've got some yes. books behind you to let everyone know that uh he reads he reads everybody they're just they're just vhs cases by the way this is my entire vhs collection you know uh, we've yeah, just absolutely. lost all all gen z they're like what the hell's a vhs <laughs> i want to kick off the show with the clickbait and i made this one up peter so you can you can make up a better one if you'd like uh okay. I've, I've i've gone with try atheism it's kind of like you know you're just like on the street let's say hey mate Hey, have you have you tried atheism? Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Like as if you're like pushing some sort of drug. If you didn't get my my drug pusher impression there, and uh, we'll 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 come to the explanation of that later. Last time you're on the show, Peter, we learned a little bit about you. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back in the archives and and see that episode. I think uh, doubt is the gateway drug to salvation. I think that was what we were talking about. And as a ritual of the show. What we would normally do, Peter, which somehow we missed last time, maybe it was an emerging ritual, but normally we like to confess our judgments as people of Ida's Ida's to you. We like to go, okay, what are some judgments and assumptions I have? I've got to get them out of my system. Otherwise, when you're talking, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be making these assumptions and I want to just throw some judgments at you and you get to confirm or deny. Now... <laughs> Last week, last week, Rob Bell, he, he just wriggled out of the boxes. He was like, oh, well, define this and maybe that. And, and I guess that's okay. Some people find boxes harder than others. And obviously boxes are too small and don't work very well. But how do you feel if we just are honest, Peter, and just confess some of the judgments that we have about you after maybe seeing a little bit of your work, maybe hearing your accent? How do you feel about that? 
Oh, fantastic. Bring it on. I love it. Love it. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Peter Rollins, let's start with the lo- a, a, lo- a slow ball, a low ball, I don't know, sports reference. Yeah. Um, the easy one is you're a philosopher. Philosopher, so you're broke. <laughs> That's a good one to start with. That is, a, that is, that is interesting. So there was an there was an ancient Greek philosopher, and I forget which one it was. And uh, people made fun of him because they were kind of like philosophers are always broke, right? You know, he had no interest in money. He was doing his thing, and uh, he decided to show them what he could do. So one day he studied the uh, the weather patterns, and he worked out weather patterns, and he bought a certain crop, he grew a certain crop in a field, made lots of money, got rid of it, and then just got back to philosophy, but just <clears> to kind of prove that it was possible to do it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, most philosophers probably are a bit broke, and uh, that is very true. And I was for most of my life. I was eight years on employment benefit, lived in a squat in Belfast, um, done all of that. But then whenever I got older, I worked out, Ah, that if I have a massive heart attack or something, I've got to have some money to kind of make sure I can get over that to get back to the books. So by 10 years ago, I uh, worked out a way that I could make money while doing what I do, which has allowed me to live in Los, Los Angeles, which is where I live now, and have some savings for, for if and when that uh, great health disaster happens. So yeah, so I'm doing all right. <laughs> well, now you're in LA, you're gonna bloody need the money, mate. There's no, there's no Medicare over there. You'll, uh, you will have to pay your bill. I know it's, it's an expensive place to live. It's a good time for freelance thinkers. We're entering into a new golden age for people who want to make a living from philosophy and, and other academic, like being a public intellectual. Because with new technology like this, well, like what we're doing, um, and with things like Patreon, and people basically get a very bad education in a lot of universities now. They're, they're pretty kind of ideological. So if you want to get a good education, you actually don't have to pay. You can get most of it for free online. You can get access to world-class thinkers. And, um, and so I know a number of philosophers now who are doing stuff on YouTube and are, and are making a living doing incredibly good philosophy on online so this is a good time for the public intellectual i think that that was the easy one uh, i did a bit of googling and you know there's there's some stuff out there you know some people uh critiquing you or perhaps judging you so uh i came across this one yep. pete rollins he's just trying to sell books <laughs> so you got your ideas but you're like what's gonna what's gonna sell another book yes or no peter is that where you sit is that what you're trying to do that's very funny. So this, this, this uh, was asked of me at a conference once, and I was with this philosopher, John Caputo, and he said something very nice. Uh, somebody kind of said, oh, you're just doing this, you know, to make money or something. And John Caputo stood up and said, said, do you know that, like, you think that when Peter started, he thought, I can make lots of money from doing continental philosophy. This is the surefire way to, to, to make a living. Um, that actually, especially doing radical theology, and that's kind of what I do is dialectical radical theology. Like, that's never the thought that's in your head. <laughs> You're never thinking this is the way to make a living. I was, funnily enough, very lucky that... Um, I got support from this family, uh, a wealthy family in America. When I was living in a squat in Belfast, or I just I was living in a small house at that stage in Belfast, on unemployment benefit, and they said, "Listen, we'll be your patron for three years. We'll pay for everything. 
come over to America and work on what you need to do and just don't worry about any bills. And so that allowed me the chance to start doing what I did. And then just as I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go back to Ireland, then there were these new technologies like Patreon that allow people to give you very small amounts of money for like uh lectures and whatnot so that kind of kept me going and i'm I'm sure that will eventually fall apart i'll have to think of something else but um yeah yeah i've made about how much have i made out of all of my books uh, over the last 15, 17 years maybe thirty thousand dollars is probably what i've oh. made oh well no actually no 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 more than that i didn't make very much of my first three and my second three i made more but in, in the 17 years when from when i wrote my first book it's maybe a hundred thousand dollars, you know. <laughs> it's, so, it's not so a lot bang of money. for buck, bang <laughs> for buck, time in, time out. It's a yeah. it's a hard slog. Every every now and again, I get a check for like it's really funny the check for like seventy nine dollars for like a book that I wrote ages ago, and oh, that's very nice. But I do, but I'm I'm fine. I'm great because I use Patreon, and most of what I do now is is uh, online seminars. I do book studies, reading groups, courses. And uh, I haven't actually written a book now for five years. I don't think. Well, this this seems to have almost turned into like a finance order with Peter. Like, come on, Peter, <laughs> <laughs> you're running for president. Show us your taxes. Show us your taxes. Um, okay, moving on from Peter. Everyone is doing fine. I'm loving doing this. Well. I've, I've never I've never had these questions. This is brilliant. I've got like these people Kegel or something. That's like. <laughs> oh, we'll I get this. We'll get there. Yeah. The great thing about this as well is like I want to encourage people if they want to go into the intellectual life there are other ways than just the university now there are other you ways you will survive that. yes you, you will can be survive. able to yes. eat buy some nice vhs and get some good meals um <laughs> okay so another one and a bit more on the the religious side of it peter you're just one of these like postmodernists, trojan horsing postmodernism uh, into the church into religion yeah yeah so Interestingly, first of all, I'm not actually a postmodernist or what's called post-structuralist. Um, I was very influenced by post-structuralism and have been. So that is true. There's an element of that that I, I definitely in my 30s, my early 30s, uh, I was influenced by people like um, Jacques Derrida. But I'm much more uh, structuralist now and I'm much more um, uh, influenced by what's called German idealism and, and Lacanian psychoanalysis but that's a, a side point I still get the idea now the funny thing is so continental philosophy it, it has this long tradition that reaches into the scholastic tradition my first degree is in scholastic philosophy actually so medieval philosophy and continental philosophy <clears throat> stretches into the medieval period and, and right back to the Greeks. And the funny thing is, it's not so much that I would say that I'm trying to, you know, put certain ideas into Christianity. When, when you look at the trajectory, you realize that some of these ideas that you find within, say, existentialism and psychoanalysis are ideas that have had their genesis uh, in Christian theology and, and Christian life. So, for example, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who's really the founder of existentialism in a way, he basically draws that directly from his reading of the Bible and especially Abraham and Isaac, right? So you suddenly realize, and instead of thinking that you're putting, say, existential ideas into the text, you're going, oh my goodness, these philosophers took some of these ideas and did something incredible with them. So 
it's it's a it's a little bit more like I see a continuity. I see these traditions and some of the work that I'm, some of the philosophers I'm interested in as, as engaging very deeply with the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I want to say to uh, the Christian tradition today that you've lost some of your best stuff. You know, other people are using it. <laughs> Grab it back, get it back, you know, right. get back Kierkegaard, get back Nietzsche, you know, get back. Uh, okay. Freud was influenced by uh, his Jewish <clears throat> tradition, Lacan by St. Paul. But anyway, I don't know if that's relevant. Or yeah. Not. I, I think I, I think I think that explains it. Uh, two more, two more. Just and uh, you, you, Peter, you're just some kind of atheist in Christian clothing to like trick Christians into nihilism. <laughs> I think that's what I say. I think that's what I say. In my <laughs> bio. You judge yourself. Yes. Yeah. This is, I'm attacking me here. Um, yeah. This is this is interesting. I, right. So I am a dialectic thinker. And that means that dialectics is a certain form of thought in which, uh, and at first it sounds weird, but I'll say it, I'll give you some examples once I've described it. A dialectic type of movement is one in which you have a position called a thesis. Uh, you have a position, say, on God or whatever. Then as you go deeper into that position, you find contradictions within it, and it develops into what's called an antithesis, which is kind of like the opposite position. And then as you go deeper into the opposite position, you find contradictions within that. And that brings you to a third position. And that third position weirdly seems to encompass the two positions before it. So I'll give you, an, I'll give you there's loads of examples in our lives, but I'll give you a couple of examples. So self-help, position of I want to change. I need to be a better person, right? That's a position. You take a position. And then you go into that and you always find yourself doing the same things. You can't do what you want to do. And so then you end up in its opposite and you say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to change. Right. And then the negation of the negation is what's called grace is the, the weird thing of when you accept that you don't have to change, that's when you begin to change. So the, the, the negation of negation there is called grace or in terms of happiness and sadness, you go to a therapist because you've become sad in your life and you, you imagine some happy period you had when you were younger or going out with a certain person or whatever. Now you're unhappy. And you think that the therapist is going to help you get back to happiness, but they don't. They push you deeper into your sadness, right? And it's only as you go so far into the darkness, the dark night of the soul, that you then find a certain type of joy in that nihilism. Now this happens. This I could we could do a hundred things. Love is the is the dialectic combination of suffering and joy. You know, it's like so. There's there's all of this atheism and theism. It's the same thing, and this is this is known very much in theology, uh, but not so much outside of it. Is that atheism and theism are thought to be opposites, affirmation and negation, but they're actually in this dance together. They enrich each other. They envelop each other. You have, for example, you know, the most basic form of theological atheism is mysticism, where the mystic says, every time I affirm God, a theism, I have to deny that affirmation because it doesn't grasp what I'm trying to refer to. So that's one form of Christian atheism, right? So it's a theism and an atheism, a nomination and a denomination to denium. And denomination is the name of the church. Churches are denominations. They're places of denaming, right? That's idolatry is called where you, you think you've got the absolute in a nutshell. So in my work, yes, I do draw out how theism and atheism 
dance together and actually how a profound embrace of atheism is itself deeply theological. Um, so okay. you, yeah, yeah, you seem to be, that's a perfect segue. Um, I'll skip the last one because we all know it's true. People just listen for your accents and stories. <laughs> I do enjoy the accent. Um, but that, that's a good segue before, as you're talking about this relationship between atheism and Christianity. And that brings us to the clickbait, like give atheism a try, try atheism. Uh, and, and to what, you're, what you do each year, Atheism for Lent. And before we go into what that is, I want to get some definitions from you. Because when people see this, when they hear, when they see the clickbait, hopefully they've been misled. Bloody good job clickbait, if that's, if that's what's happened. That's the design. Uh, but when they hear the term atheism, they'll go, oh, like atheism as far as like this Richard Dawkins game, enemy of apologetics. It's Christianity v. atheism. And it's this, it's this just battle of ideas and you pick a team. Define for me the atheism that you're talking about in, as it stands differently from that caricature that, Daw- that someone like Dawkins might paint being like, if you're religious you're an idiot and you just got to not believe in a God or be part of a religion or something. What, how does the atheism you're talking about differ from that caricature? Okay. Yeah. And, and just to, you, there's a, a difference you made there. You talk about atheism and Christianity. The only thing I'd want to say is I don't think they're opposites. So I, I think mm-hmm. atheism and theism are dialectic, but what I want to argue is that Christianity encompasses theism and atheism like, in lots of different ways. So, We'll, we'll go for the easy one first, and then maybe if we've got time, we'll go into the deep stuff. The deep stuff's really interesting, where, where you can argue that Christianity is all about their side. It's all about the, a certain type of death of God, of certain form of entering into atheism, but we'll leave that for a second. <laughs> um, so atheism, there's, it's, not, it's true to say there's lots of different atheisms, of course, and lots of different theisms, and every theism generates an atheism. And at a very simple level... <clears throat> You know, in atheism for Lent, the course that I bring out, I start with the very basic arguments against the existence of God, the ones that people watch on YouTube, right? Um, and then we look at the, the, from there, we then go to the mystics, the mystical atheism. And the mystical atheism is a little bit different because that's a type of, as I said, it's an atheism that negates every theism because it wants, because it wants to embrace what's called theopoetics. It wants to move from, um, a, a discourse that kind of names the absolute to a discourse that is an act of praise towards what cannot be spoken. Then you have um, a type of atheism that is that simply uh, rejects. It, it's not about the disbelieving that God exists. It's just saying that what's important is reality, is justice, and what is re- what is what is what is important is human flourishing and we need to that, would that be that. like humanism yeah humanism's in there as well so that's an mm-hmm. yeah so ludwig feuerbach is probably one of the best thinkers on that and he's a humanist he's one of the beginnings of humanism um and then after that you've got then some existential theologians who fully embrace that and say absolutely uh religion at its best is a fully embodied materialist commitment to one another in the act of love itself and then from there you get into an even more interesting type of uh, dialectic between atheism and theism 
which you find in the work of someone like Slavoj Žižek, uh, a philosopher who's very, very well known. He's a philosopher and theologian. So I, I almost want to say that it's a wide, like atheism and theism are constantly enriching each other and deepening each other. And for example, Soren Kierkegaard would agree with all of the critiques of the new atheists, right? Of course, the God that they don't believe in is exactly the God that Paul Tillich doesn't believe in. God's, God, uh, Paul Tillich says there's an atheism closer to God than theism, right? All of these critiques critique a certain type of superstitious God that uh, is just a bigger version of ourselves, right? It's like just like people's dogs look like them, uh, people's gods look like them. So there is a certain sense in which a philosopher like Merrill Westphal he wrote a book called Suspicion and Faith, where he used Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, and Feuerbach as purifying readings. He said these, these readings actually get us to a deeper understanding of faith. They don't push you away from it. They bring you deeper into it. So are you, is this like this dialectic? You're saying that atheism and theism are not, not so much opposites, but if you are religious and you go into that, like rabbit hole of YouTube being like, nah, like, like this type of God that I believe in, this is the one. And then you on YouTube, you're like, hang on, God debunked 101 from your favorite YouTuber. And then they, and then they start watching it. Many Christians might look at that and go, oh no, they're going away from the faith. But it sounds like you're saying that that practice of them going, oh, is that God real? And I'm going to watch this critique of this God that I believe in. And then maybe come out the other side and go, okay, well, I don't necessarily believe in this type of God. When we say type of God, I guess I'm meaning like a God that you pray to that will, if you do the right things, he'll bless you. And then if you do the wrong things, he'll curse you. And you might come out the other side and go, well, I don't know if God's like that anymore. Is, is what you're describing when you're going into these different types of atheism, is this like a, a religious practice almost? Yes. Oh, yeah, it is. That's why atheism for Lent is a spiritual practice. I call it a decentering practice. I've got a series of decentering practices which are designed to destabilize and decenter the individuals who who do these practices. Like uh, we have a worldview that said that places us at the center, and you're saying to encounter these thinkers and do these things, and you'll be like, oh, like I guess that is. Would decentering be the feeling when you look up at the stars and you're like, man, the universe is pretty big and I'm pretty insignificant? Is that like an example of a decentering? Yeah. It is. I mean, if you look at if you look at science, science often makes massive progress at the moment that it decenters us. So, of course, there's the Copernican revolution that decenters us from this heliocentric notion of the universe. There's uh, the Freudian decentering where we go, oh, our consciousness is not the center of our being. There's the Darwinian decentering so decentering fun that we people talk about centering practices but actually all the all the fun stuff is in decentering i'm Irish, so i love a good fight you know, i love decentering but but decentering is a is a very very productive um thing for us to bring into our lives to challenge ourselves it's very enjoyable and my my big concern is right so in my work i help people often move out of unhealthy worldviews whatnot what sometimes people do is when, when their worldview or their religion begins to feel and they begin to see contradictions within it, then they just find another alternative version. They break up with that religion, but they don't break up with the type of relationship they have with it. So they just seek something else that will make them whole and complete, that will give them the answers, whether it's psychedelics or polyamory or fame or money or another religion or this or that. Um, this is actually why for me, atheism 
in its in its contemporary form isn't atheist enough. Uh, contemporary humanism, the critique of humanism is that it has, and this is Nietzsche's critique of humanism actually. Nietzsche's critique of humanism is that it still wants to have some sort of centering, centers the human, centers this sense of which we can be our own kind of kind of we can find wholeness and completeness in our own lives and our in in uh, in an embodied material way. And Nietzsche's like, no, we have to embrace a certain fracturing of reality. We that's what he means by the death of God, an experience of the loss of meaning, an experience of the loss of of the foundations of our lives. But only in going into that type of dark night of the soul can we find something that is um, that kind of can we find an affirmation of life. But we have to go into that darkness to find it. So you're saying that there's some level of further spiritual development or like further to the heart of the religion itself when you go into that nihilism because you have religion like christianity that'll say you're special you know god made you the like these are the central tenets of christianity that make us valuable and then it's almost like when you go into the atheistic critique that says well you're not you're not that special you know evolution says decenters you and it's like well millions of years you're just a blip humanity's just a blip on the spectrum of the universe and then when you go into that go oh i am i guess not as important as i thought in that way are you saying that you end up in a more hopeful space ever by going through this nihilism this nihilism that you kind of come to and go oh I'm, i guess i'm you know this universe i guess it is a bit meaningless what's on the other side of like I guess going into that because people just might be hearing like, why do I want to, why do I want to decenter myself? I guess. Yeah. Well, we do want to. My goodness, we spend so much of our energy not, you know, so much of our lives are are spent not going into the darkness to find the light. Like, <laughs> you know, we're we're all guilty of that. By the way, this is my issue with with humanism. Is it's the humanism is quite an intellectual. That you like you you think that stuff, but like that's why it's rubbish, right? You've got to feel it. So for me, the Christian is the one who experiences the death of God in their body. So the role of the church is to experience an existential deicide. So whenever Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle was the first person, this is quite incredible actually, to see a significance in the death of God, that there's something about, in what he says, I preach Christ crucified, that there's something about identifying with this experience of absolute loss. And by the way, the crucifixion is obviously a dialectic, right? The infinite comes into the finite world, right? That which cannot die, dies. You know, there's, there's all of these dialectics going on in the cross, obviously. But the idea is that the, in identifying with the crucifixion, you experience the cry of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not, not intellectually, but at the very core of your being. And only when you experience that death of God, and that's what Nietzsche meant, you, you feel it. That's what he was saying to in his famous parable of the madman, he's talking to people who don't believe in God. He's saying, God is dead and you've killed him and you don't even realize it. You, the, 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 the lightning is struck, but you haven't heard the thunder. He says, you have to feel it in your bones. So yeah, for me, the Christian event, not confessional Christianity, this is not what you get at your local church, but, <laughs> but radical Christianity is, yes, this existential experience of the utter 
desolation of your subjectivity. Mm-hmm. That's conversion. That's the moment of de- of of radical decentering, where you are neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Where you identify with Christ, who lost all identity. So you identify with the one who loses identity. And in that experience, yes, only through that experience can you find a deeper affirmation of faith. It's kind of yeah. It's 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 almost like uh, you know you won't hear this in religion. It's almost like saying you have to lose your life to find it. <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard that before. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, okay. Because what you're saying, because you're, you're dropping philosophers, and I'm like, I'll have to Google him later. Uh, <laughs> but but what you're saying is there's like a... Because it, you're talking about these ideas that mm-hmm. we can go to almost intellectually and go, okay, Christianity, confessional Christianity, as you call it, gives a set of beliefs. And you go, if you intellectually espouse these ideas... I believe in the resurrection. I believe that God is God. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. That I believe that. And when I say belief, I'm just intellectually going, okay, I believe them. Then it sounds like you're saying, well, intellectually, if you go on that journey and lose those ideas in what would be just be called atheism, being like, oh, I don't know if God is even real. You're, you're talking about the necessity of that feeling. So I guess if someone is to genuinely lose their faith, they would feel it physically and feel it experientially. Well, my argument is there's very few atheists, right? There's very few atheists. I did a talk uh, a few years ago in Belfast to a group of about 70 or 80 people who, almost all of them, I put, got them to put up their hands, said, who here is an atheist? Most of them put up their hands, right? And I said, seriously, you don't believe in gods or angels or fairies or anything? No, 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 right. So then I asked them to do something. I said, listen, can you get out your mobile phones and bring up the picture of someone you love? Fair enough, right? And then I took out of my pocket uh, a piece of paper and I said, this piece of paper, this is a satanic curse from like the 1400s. And it's a thing that you say over somebody. You have to have somebody in your mind or some object that they've touched. And then you say this curse over them and uh, bad things will happen to them. So I said, so who wants to come up and say the curse over the person that they've got on their mobile phone? And virtually nobody moved. Nobody moved. And I was like, listen, I'm not telling you what I believe. You guys don't believe any of this stuff, so it's easy. Nobody moved. Because, of course, they deep down, there's still God is unconscious. This is what people don't realize. We don't know what we believe. So first of all, we don't know what we believe. This is a very bizarre thing. When I came to America, people thought they knew what they believed. It's like almost like the, the one thing I know is what I believe. No, you don't. I know people who don't believe in ghosts, but as soon as it's nighttime and they hear a tapping on the window, they put their duvet over, they cover their head and think it's like Harry Potter protection fill, right? I know people who, um, uh, you know, have all sorts of, of beliefs, but they don't, like, think that they love their mother and then dream about, you know, shouting at them. They, they actually don't love their mother. They're pretending. Our consciousness is basically a defense against seeing what we believe. That's why you have to listen to your dreams. That's why you have to do psychoanalysis, because we're actually very protected against what we believe. And I'm actually saying only the Christian can be a true atheist, that the Christian experience is the experience of the loss of that God in order to find a resurrection, which we haven't got to yet, might not get to in this podcast. But you see what I'm saying? Is that you, somebody might say in response to that, that now boy, I got that idea from Darren Brown, the illusionist. He did this. He did a thing called How to Convert an Atheist. And he, he got people who didn't believe in ghosts, put them alone in a, in a room 
and they start some people started to freak out that's why you can always convert someone to a superstitious god because often it's down there unconsciously as soon as you get them anxious it comes up now that's a superstitious notion of god the idea that there's a god in heaven that would curse someone you love because of something I printed out off, off the internet. And by the way, change to make it sound more scary. <laughs> you know, um, I, I even said to one of my mates in the room, I said, Adam, you do it. You know, you, you're, you're completely secular. You said over me, said over me. And he wouldn't even do that. He doesn't even like me. But like, there you go. There's, there's, that's what I mean by atheism is not atheist enough. And that you have to experience existentially the crucifixion in your body. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Christian event. And only after that can we really, I think, grasp what faith is. So in some sense, is what you're saying then, is when you say, hey, mate, give atheism a crack when people look at this and they're, they're thinking you're pushing atheism. It almost sounds like you're saying, yeah, give it a crack, but you're not really going to get there. It's, you're almost saying it's so hard to be a true atheist even when you're trying to be an atheist, what you're saying is what you're more likely to uncover is your deeper belief and a more substantive belief or faith. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and that's negative. That's the point. Yes, I'm going to basically say that you'll find you've got all sorts of superstitions, right? You've all got all sorts of weird beliefs that you don't think you have, right? I mean, some people think that money will make them happy, right? You know, there's weird beliefs that we have today, spiritual beliefs, um, that having more possessions will somehow uh, make us whole and complete, that having fame will somehow take away existential lack. I mean, the world's, like I'm in LA, the most religious place in the world, everybody's selling a religion of if you have enough sex, if you have enough fame, if you have enough money, then everything will be great. The world's full of, of, of religious beliefs, of wholeness and completeness. So, yeah, what, when I say atheism for Lent, the irony is I'm going like, whether you're a theist or an atheist, you've got to go even deeper into atheism. You've got to experience the death of God. So in the course, every day of Lent, you get theists and atheists, but all these different forms of bringing you into this deeper experience until on Good Friday, you can feel the cry of Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the way, some people say, and, and then after that, will everything be good? We're like, if I tell you it's not dialectic, if I, that's, that's like being in a roller coaster, but you know, strapping yourself in so you have the, the feeling of danger, but no real danger. I'm like, just go, just t- if you want, go into the heart of darkness, but maybe in that, in that dialectic embrace of the loss of everything, you will come out and find something kind of more, more beautiful. And here's another example. It's like, like we, we're always striving for something that will make us whole and complete. So we strive for something that will fix everything. And then we give up on that and we say, nothing will make me whole and complete. But then if we fully embrace that idea, we find completeness in not being complete. We're like, oh, I'm wonderfully not complete. Nothing's going to fix everything. And that's actually the joy of life is that, so in my own life, pyrotheology, what is pyrotheology? Well, I don't know. I'm making it up as I go along. And every time I try to explain what it is, I feel I don't quite get it right. So I always fail to get it. But that failure generates knowledge and it generates activity and it generates pleasure. So again, it's another dialectic. It's like, oh, 
I have to, success. I need to be successful and get something. You go, no, the failure of not getting. And then there's the, the success within the failure that actually the constant failure is where the enjoyment is. So, uh, is the death of God that you're talking about, like we experience through, let's say when, you, when you're doing atheism for Lent, you, you're going through these readings and these ideas and this dialectic of exploring one position to another and pulling and decentering yourself and, and, and coming to these conclusions. Um, is, is the death of God when you're saying at the end, you'll, you'll get there and you'll feel like God on the cross being like, oh, God is gone. God is dead. And then in that you're saying, now, now you're feeling what Jesus felt in, in, that, in that sense. Is that decentering or the death of God that we experience? How close to that is like the death of yourself or the death of your ego being like, oh, I'm not the center. Is that that discovery that I'm not so important? Is that similar to what you're talking about with the death of God? Yeah, I mean, I'll put it like this. The, the, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, it is the experience that. OK, can I like. I'll give you. I'll give you my brief reading of Christianity. My goodness, this is in, in try, I'll try and do it in a couple of minutes or less. Right? <laughs> You've got. So uh, I'll start with the very quickly Oedipal, the Oedipal complex. Right? We all we've all heard the story of Oedipus wants to sleep with his mother. Uh, his father's in the way. He kills the father. Sleeps with his mother. He doesn't know it's his mother. But sleeps with his mother. Thinks it's going to be a blessing, but it's a curse. Right? Now, one way of describing what that means is the mother is a symbol of returning to oceanic oneness, wholeness, completeness, original blessing, right? The father is what gets in the way that stops you from getting the thing that you think will make you whole and complete, right? Money, fame, whatever it is. And uh, Oedipus breaks through the prohibition, gets the thing that he thinks will work, and it's a disaster, right? So in other words, this is the, this is the idea where only when you fulfill your dreams do you realize that your dreams will not fulfill you. Right. Your dreams are impotent. They're horrific. Right. And we, we have the fantasy they'll be great until we get them. Now, the story of the Bible begins with an Oedipal story. Adam and Eve in a garden. There's a piece of fruit. A serpent says, if you eat of that fruit, you'll be whole and complete. You will you will be like God. You will be which means lack the lack. You, you will be like God. They break through the prohibition. They get the fruit and it's a disaster. Right. Now, in psychoanalysis, the voice that tells you. Uh, to seek with the mother, right? To get the thing, that's called the superego. The superego is always telling you you should be nicer to your mum. Now, the superego today is different. The superego today is you should ha have more sex. You should be going out more. You should have a more fulfilled life, right? It's a it's a hedonistic voice, but that's the superego. In the in the Jewish tradition, it's the serpent. It's an inner voice saying, "Do this, and you'll be whole and complete." We think we have to obey that, but the point is to exorcise it to get rid of that voice. So very quickly now, the, the crucifixion is a replay of that scenario. You've got the Temple of Jerusalem, the Court of Gentiles, everyone hanging out. Just think of the Garden of Eden. You've got a prohibition, a big curtain, and then you've got the Holy of Holies, right? Where the sacred is. At the crucifixion, the moment that you hear Christ cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The temple curtain rips, just like a magician's curtain. And you see inside the Holy of Holies, and there's nothing there. The thing that you think will make you whole and complete doesn't exist. That's the heart of darkness. But it doesn't end there, right? Because then you realize that the sacred is not an object that you love, 
but the sacred is a depth dimension you experience in the act of love itself, right? So what you have in Christianity, it's very interesting, is you, have the, you start with the idea that God is an object that you love. And post-resurrection, you've got the idea of God is the name of a reality you touch when you love, right? So you can't love God. You can only love, but in loving you love God. So it's, it's again, it's a dialectic, right? In the moment, mm-hmm. that's why that's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says to live fully as if God does not exist is to live fully before God and with God. Because he said to live as God does not exist as a being, but to give yourself in love to your neighbor is dialectically to live fully into the notion of God in that, you know, in that tradition. Okay. So it's like what you, what I guess you've said a few times now is like that discovery that nothing will make you whole and complete. Nothing will return you. All these promises being made by by Hollywood, by uh, you know the New Age, saying if you do these things, you'll you'll feel better, you'll be younger, you'll be richer. It's that. It's almost that Christian story that you'll hear growing up in just a summer camp, being like, money won't make you happy, more sex won't make you happy, so don't do it. And and it's taken that step further and being like, not even being a perfect religious person, having the right beliefs, having a rock-solid theology, none of that is going to almost deal with this whole... Yeah. Or not, none of that... You're almost saying nothing can complete that God-shaped whole. Yes, because God, God is the whole, because God is the whole. God is not what fills the gap. God is the wound. There is this Russian religious sect that literally cut a hole into the wall of their building and they pray to the gap, right? Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. And so my, my question that comes from that is, because um, I want to kind of almost come out the other side. As, as people think about going, all right, I kind of want to really go deep into this into this experience, this dialectic, this practice of experiencing some level of atheism and experiencing some level of decentering. Mm-hmm. When you're saying through this, you'll you'll learn to maybe give up some idols and decenter yourself and, and learn to just go, all right, nothing will make me whole and complete. Does what what happens on the other side of that? I guess the question yeah. is why engage in this practice? will we become better people or is that just putting up another idol? Like some people might listen to you and go, well, and maybe like being in LA, if people hear you and you were telling them, listen, they're like buying that car won't make you whole and complete. Will people just lose ambition? It sounds like the whole American economy is built on this, like more, 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 more. And if, and if you're telling people, listen, it's not going to make you happy. Does all innovation stop? Do we like what's on the other side of this that's the fantasy of capitalism the fantasy is like I know loads of people who fantasize they have you know jobs they don't like and things are not good but they fantasize a life without sacrifice where maybe one day they'll be able to have enough money that they'll be able to sit by the beach and all that that fantasy of a world without sacrifice is melancholy right the whole point is there's the depression the sadness of not getting what you want and there's the sadness of getting what you want Right. The sadness of not getting what you want is depression. Sadness of getting what you want is melancholy. Right. So the whole point of yeah, what I'm saying is, you no, know, you have to fully realize that it's actually the enjoyment of life is in realizing that struggle and sacrifice is central. The issue is when we're sacrificing and we're not seeing our communities and the people we love benefit from that sacrifice is when it's when it's an issue. So what I'm saying is like it's actually this attempt to get rid of sacrifice, to fill the lack, to fill the void it's destructive to us. And then if we ever got that, it would be 
damaging. Now, one thing uh, to say about this, because uh, you were asking about the, um, okay, there's a few things, there's so many interesting things. <laughs> you go where you want to go. <laughs> yeah. Someone like René Girard would say that, that basically, you know, without wanting to boil it down too much, central to Christianity is what's called the scapegoat mechanism. The scapegoat mechanism is where you put your own kind of lack, your own issues onto somebody else. So you kind of go, things aren't working. So you find someone to blame. That's the scapegoat. You try to kill them. And then everyone unifies around that death, right? Now, this is my problem with wholeness thought. is because when you think, and Hitler loved this. He, in Mein Kampf, he's always writing about organic wholes and organic systems. Very new age kind of thinker. Um, there's always has to be a virus that's preventing the wholeness, right? So you always have to find some group that's preventing everything from working. Politics 101. And you, yeah, exactly. And you, you unify around that shared hatred. And the whole point for René Girard of, of Christianity is it exposes the scapegoat mechanism that what we should be like is have a community that is centered around a lack. I mean, that's what the Last Supper is, right? a meal shared around a lack. AA is another example, a community that is based around going, I'm an alcoholic, I have certain problems, and it's embracing that that actually helps the person be healthier as an individual. So my work is saying, yes, it's precisely embracing your own lack and brokenness that creates healthier community that can lead to healthier life. And by the way, just one other thing about this, this lack that I'm talking about, is not just religious. It's like for the philosopher Hegel, every discipline eventually comes to this insight that there is a not at oneness of the world. So in democracy, it's called, or sorry, in, in politics, it's called democracy. Democracy is the non at oneness of the social body that generates, hopefully, something positive and good. In biology, it's called evolution. Evolution is the name for a non-at-oneness of the biological organism that creates complexity. In mathematics, it's called incompleteness theorem, where mathematics falls into its own contradictions whenever it tries to totalize itself, which is a way of saying that there's a kind of contradiction at the heart of mathematics. In quantum mechanics, you've got wave-particle duality. All in, in psychoanalysis is the unconscious it makes you, means you're not at one with yourself. And I would argue in Christianity, it's called salvation, right? The embrace of identifying with the crucified Christ who experiences a loss within himself. And when you experience that, you experience something profoundly positive. So when you're talking about atheism for Lent, mm -hmm. how does, what, what is the practice then that you're going to do if you say, you know, atheism for Lent, when it, when is like when does that start when does it end and what do you like when people go okay well, what does that involve how does your what does your practice involve that steps you through to this experiential discovery that the tension and the sacrifice and all the things we try and avoid in life are truly the things that make life worth living in a sense is what i'm gathering Yes. Yeah. And the reason for atheism for Lent as a spiritual practice is we can't enter into this dark night of the soul without art and community. It's too hard. It's too difficult. That's why we need musicians, because sometimes when we're suffering really badly, we need someone who puts that suffering into a beautiful form. They sing about a breakup. They sing about the difficulties of life. But the way they put it together is so beautifully constructed that it helps us bring that stuff to the surface in our own lives. We stop repressing it. We, we know the truth and the truth sets us free. 
So part of the whole idea for atheism for Lent is this journey is so difficult that we need reflections daily. Little from Fran will be cartoons one week, philosopher the next, a podcast the next. And we need a community, even if it's a virtual community, who we can unpack this with and process this journey with. So the reason why I do this is because without, and it doesn't have to be atheism for them, but without art and community going into that place where we look at the difficulties of life, where we go into the fracturedness of our being, where we are honest about our doubts and our uncertainties, it's so difficult, it's so almost impossible that, 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 that we need we need art, we need music, we need liturgy, we need spoken word. So that's what it, that's why I do atheism for Lent, to help people come into that and feel it with the confidence that that experience dialectically is a is a positive one. So then talk to me and philosophers like you will be good at kind of avoiding this question, but talk to me about you and your experience and journey into the discovery of atheism and how i guess this embrace of atheism has helped you yeah okay um so this like so uh how this embrace of atheism has helped me so my, my work is is about it's not about atheism as such or thing but yeah it's about bringing us into this experience of lack of embracing the not at oneness of our being um, that we are contradictions. I mean, by the way, the name for that is symptom. A symptom is a, a, a coagulation of a contradiction. So say, for example, we're crunching our teeth. Often you'll find that that person might want to shout at somebody, but also they want to keep their mouth shut because they're worried that they'll piss the person off. So the symptom is the grinding of the teeth. It's, a, it's, a, it's the reality of a contradiction in the person. So a lot of my work, is about helping people enter into and experience those contradictions in their life and make space for them. And that's definitely something that I've done in my own life. Um, you can't help other people doing that if you haven't experienced it yourself. Um, in relationships, sometimes in our, in our world, we think that a, a person will make us whole and complete. And so that's the death of God for us. When, when that first major breakup happens and we have to not run from that, but somehow make make peace with that and mourn that for some it's the loss of their religious beliefs it happens in in various ways um or some for someone else it might be the loss of their health or growing old or losing their looks whatever it is it doesn't matter it's something that 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 kind of like uh opens us up to that suffering that we have to make peace with so yeah that's definitely you know something i've walked in my own in my own life when yeah. i i guess what what happened for you to get that first discovery of going this this suffering is valuable what like what was that first moment for you when you when you began to what made you begin to embrace that that level of going i'm not going to avoid this anymore yeah well you know it's, it's a mix of couplings one is you know it's my training you know so i'm trained and in philosophy and psychoanalytic theory and so some of it was an intellectual journey seeing kind of making sense of of life you know and then some of it definitely was personal because it has to you know this has to connect with your own individual life so you know early on whenever you start questioning what you believe or say have your first breakup um you've, you've got a choice you've got a choice of sometimes repressing things pretending it's not happening or trying to make space for that 
And you know what, probably I just had good people around me and I had good rituals around me that allowed me to experience that in my own life. And so now I, I try to help people experience that in theirs. Is that, that's still not, you know. My, my wife would be deeply dissatisfied with your answer because I think we, we chatted to you one time uh, when you were in Melbourne and she's like, I just want to I just want to know about him. But we, we've run out of time to know about you. Next time I'll get my wife here and uh, we'll, we'll talk about who is, who is Pete Rollins. Uh, as, we, <laughs> as, we, as we finish up, um, we are doing a competition at the moment and Pete, you're giving away... What? Well, is it two or three? Whatever you decide. Where I, I think I was planning two. Two's fine. Two's good, you know. But if you want, you know, two atheism for Lent tickets uh, for people who would want to join, you've actually got the rules of the competition. But I just wanted, because when I was doing this podcast, I thought, okay, I definitely want to offer a couple of free tickets uh, for anybody who would be intrigued by this journey. And if you want to know what to do to get those tickets, just go to my Instagram account. I don't know if Pete will have it on his, but you'll be able to see just, I think it's just the follow and tag some people. And then at the end of this week, I'll hit up whoever's won. So if you want to enter, just tag people and you'll get your entries. And then you'll get uh, a free ticket to, we're giving away two, you'll get a free ticket to Atheism for Lent. When does Atheism for Lent start? 17th of February. Yeah, and uh, it goes to the yeah. for the whole month for the whole for forty days. Ah, uh, yeah, you're not a, a old traditional Catholic or something. No, I'm not Catholic enough. <laughs> forty days, Jesus, yeah. more than a month. Okay, it's okay. a lot. It's a lot. Um, so yeah, people can do that, and I hope I haven't freaked people out. This has been a really fun conversation. <laughs> the, the big takeaway for me, for anybody who's like, "What's the takeaway?" is everything I'm saying is weirdly this dialectic: is that the more you go into death, the more you find life. So whenever we egotistically try to keep hold of our lives, we experience a type of death. When we lose ourselves in love for another, we find in that loss the return. In trying to get something and then not trying to get something, we discover that in grace where we don't have to do anything, that allows us to change. Um, that going into, when we're, we're confronted with happiness and sadness, we want to run to the happiness. But actually, if we can have space for the sadness and go into that sadness, it, with with art and with good friends, we'll actually find the joy. And here's the weird irony: is if to go into just like the, in the image of God becoming human, to the infinite becoming finite. Somehow, the finite encounters the infinite. And so, weirdly, in theism and atheism, by going into atheism as a purifying uh, spiritual practice, one actually might find that they gain the very thing that they thought they would lose. So it sounds like you're saying if you're up for the challenge, because it might not be easy and it might not be pleasant, but it might be worth it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Dissatisfaction guaranteed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good. And if you're dissatisfied, then, well, that's the design. That's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Peter, thanks so much for joining me, taking the time to explain in probably a too short a time, something very complicated and uh, if, if people want to like learn more about your work, sign up Atheist for Lent, see what you're up to, what can they do? Yeah, so there's loads of free stuff online on YouTube. Go onto my website, you'll find stuff there. Hundreds of hours of things. I have a podcast called The Fundamentalists. But And then if you like some of that stuff, I also run courses and 
book studies and all of that. But there's plenty out there for free. Just type in my name on YouTube. And if it's some of the early stuff, I'll have crazy bedhead. And because and, uh, I used to just get up in the morning with my phone and talk to it. So they look terrible. If it's more recent, the videos look better. So there you go. <laughs> that's, yes, that's good. So whether you agree or disagree with, with some of these ideas, not the point. Hopefully, at least now you understand a little bit more about Pete. We're going to find out who this bloody Pete Rollins is. <laughs> I don't know. Who is Pete Rollins? I always avoid that. You know why I avoid that, by the Tell way? Tell me, Peter. Truth, yeah. It's because, so an analyst doesn't tell you very much about themselves because they want to be a screen upon which people project and mm. do transference. And also, so a lot of my work is the less people know, the more that they can project onto me. And that allows me to, it's, yeah, well, no, you know what? That's, that's a very complicated thing. But here, very quickly, okay, I'll say it like this, is in therapy, you think that the person is a person, your analyst is a, just a regular person like you. Yeah. And, but analysis doesn't start like that. The next level is when you start to treat them like they're your father or your mother. You don't realize you're doing it, but you start to transfer another relationship onto them. And then finally, you start thinking about them and they're in your head and the work can happen. In the same way for me, the church, people at first think the minister is just a regular person. But then without thinking about it, they think the minister is the uh, the avatar of God. They're not thinking about it, but they think that the whole liturgical structure is, is what God looks like. That's why if a minister gives someone the finger in the car, it's not them, it's God doing it. You know, it feels more, you know. And so the idea is that you allow people to transfer their notion of God onto the structure. So the structure can then uh, reorient that notion of God, can destroy that, that superstitious notion of God and bring you to what, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or no, Paul Tillich talks about the God after God. Mm -hmm. So I do want to, you know, yeah, in my, people don't want to know about me. There's nothing very interesting. Just like everybody else, I want to be a symbolic figure that's just useful for people for a time that mm -hmm. what might work for will help them do better. So it's not about me. It's not about, you know, what ice cream I like or anything like that. It's all boring. I just want to be of use to people in their journey. Yeah. So Peter, as part of uh, PeterRollins.com used to be .net. Mm. Um, yes. you're, you're saying you're like, you're, you're part of the practice. And I think yes. I get it because on Ideas Digest, we get a lot of people being like, and someone even put it in the comments on the live saying, are you Christian or atheist? And, and what happens is when I hide what I think, then it, it creates a space for people to, cause I'm trying to create a space for people to come and engage with, um, and listen to other people's ideas. But I feel like if they know what I'm thinking or I'm believing, they're going to go, oh, that guy, he's just a nut job Christian or he's just one of these cynical atheists. And then, I, you know, it, it kind of compromises what I'm, what I'm trying to do. Anyway, Peter, thanks so much for, for taking so much time to chat to us. Um, if you think I've missed any crucial questions, which I'm bloody sure I have, there's a lot to go into. Shoot us an email, artistartist.gmail.com or a DM on Instagram. What questions did I miss and who would you like to hear from next? Peter, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, and I'll, I guess I'll catch everyone in the next episode.